Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. I want to start out today by asking you a question. Do you need forgiveness? Well, in one sense, we all absolutely do need forgiveness. Forgiveness is required to be able to rest and enjoy and experience real abundant life with no fear. But in a much deeper sense, you don't need forgiveness from God at all because you already have way more forgiveness than you'll ever need. What God requires, he always provides in advance. Instead of Adam's dark religious small g God's concept of an if-then God, like if you do this, then God will give you that. Instead of that, the only true God, Jesus Papa, who is pure light with no trace of darkness, he operates on the because-therefore principle. Because he has already forgiven you of everything, past, present, and future, therefore, you don't need forgiveness. You don't need to worry if you're forgiven. You don't need to fear punishment because of sins that you haven't been forgiven for. You can truly rest from any attempts to try to get forgiven because you are already totally forgiven. Today, I want to talk about how great our forgiveness is and what does that mean for us and everybody else. Now, you know, or hopefully you're coming to know that there's always a much deeper meaning to things we read in Scripture and to most things that we hear and see in our daily lives. So there are two principles today regarding us and God that I want to focus on and go maybe deeper than we ever had before. First is the size and scope of God's grace. Second is the size and scope of God's forgiveness. They go hand in hand, and they are inseparable. Now, please don't roll your eyes or tune out or go, oh, grace, forgiveness. I mean, I've known about that since I was a kid. Well, I thought I had too. I did on a very surface elementary level. So let's take a look at the size and scope of God's grace. Let's do that by looking at Jesus' first recorded miracle, the elementary easy-to-see meaning and the much deeper meaning. This is recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'm using the Passion Translation today. And some of the things I'm sharing with you, I've learned from Brian Simmons, who is the translator of the Passion, some from my friend Malcolm Smith, some from many other people, and some directly from God himself. All right. John 2, 1 to 11. The text says, now on the third day, there was a wedding feast in the Galilean village of Cana, and Jesus' mother was there. Now, this would be a Tuesday in our week today. The Hebrew week began on Sunday. The third day was chosen to be a special day for weddings because it was the third day of creation. It was the only day that God said, it is good 
two different times. So the day was considered twice blessed. And Tuesdays were ideal for Jewish weddings because that gave them enough time after the Sabbath when they couldn't uh, travel and things like that to get to where they were going to go and be there and then get back for the next Sabbath unless the, the wedding lasted a really long time. The third day is also a picture of the day of resurrection glory, the day Jesus rose from the dead. All right, verses two and three. Jesus and his disciples were all invited to the banquet. So that probably means, it means at the very least, that Jesus were and his disciples were friends of whoever was getting married. Most likely, they were also relatives of, at least of Jesus and his mother. All right. With so many guests in attendance, they ran out of wine. There was a big crowd, probably 100 to 150 people. And when Mary realized it, she came to Jesus for help. In that day and age, in that society, in that part of the world, it was a real social faux pas. It, it was something that would bring shame on you to run out of food or wine when you had guests, especially at a wedding or something like that. So probably, at the very least, these were friends of Jesus' mother, Mary, most probably relatives. And she didn't want them to suffer embarrassment. So she came to Jesus and said, hey, they don't have any wine. Can you do something about it? All right. What a question that she would ask. Now, I want to look at the very surface level thing going on here is that Jesus, like anybody else, any other human, loved being with people, just doing ordinary things with people, celebrating, hanging out, going to weddings, doing life with people. Now, as we look a little deeper, as Brian Simmons says, interpreting Mary's words for today, we could say that Mary was saying religion has failed. It has run out of wine. And Brian goes on to say the traditions of religion cannot gladden the heart, but Jesus can. My friend Malcolm Smith tells us how, in his understanding, religion turns wine into water, but Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus' grace turned water into wine. Okay, it seems like Mary didn't have any doubt about the power and anointing of her son, Jesus. I mean, the angel spoke to her uh, before she conceived. She knew that Jesus was going to be divine and all of that. So she asked him if he can do something. Verse four, Jesus replied, my dear one, don't you understand that if I do this, it won't change anything for you, but it will change everything for me. The hour of unveiling my power has not yet come. Now, it could be that Mary was getting anxious. Jesus was like 30 years old. She's wondering, okay, man, when are you going to get started? And it really won't change her life when Jesus goes public. But for him, he knew his first public miracle would dramatically change his ministry because the crowds would see the power that he possesses. And then everybody would come to him and want him to use that power for him. So Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he's not going to do that until the Father tells him to. Jesus tells us he only does and only says what the Father tells him to say. It's like he has continually has one ear listening to God and the other ear listening to whatever's going on around him. So apparently at that moment, Jesus said, Papa, what do you want me to do? And Papa said, not yet, not your time yet. So that's what he says. Mom, it's not my time. So Mary then went to the servers and she told them, all right, whatever Jesus tells you to do, just make sure you do that. Now in verse six, there were six stone water pots, great big pots there. 
Each one held about 20 gallons or more of water. They were big water pots. Six in the Jewish culture, Hebrew culture, is the number for man. Man was made on the sixth day of creation. Now, the six stone jars could represent man's method of participating with God to help other people. So apparently Jesus, always listening to the Father, was listening. Papa said, not now. Mary said, whatever Jesus says to do, do it. And then Papa said, okay, now it's time. Why would God change his mind or be waiting for, what would he be waiting for? Why would just a few seconds make a difference? I believe it's because God just refuses to be God without us. He always participates with us. We participate with him. God was waiting for exactly the right time for people to participate with him. So Jesus came to the servers, and of course, Jesus himself was a server. He came to serve, not to be served. Jesus came to the servers and said, fill the pots with water right up to the very brim. Put enough water in them, you know, 20 or 30 gallons, whatever they'll hold. Then he said, now fill your pitchers, your serving pitchers with the water and take them to the master of ceremonies. So they did. Jesus' mom said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. When they poured out their pitcher, For the master of ceremonies to sample, then the water became wine. Jesus didn't change the water in the big 20-gallon pots. He waited until human beings, people participated with him, and he let them have the joy and the exhilaration and the bliss of pouring water out of their pitchers and seeing it become wine. They got the joy of participating with him. Now, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that had become wine, he was impressed. He didn't know where the wine had come from, but the servers knew. It was just ordinary water. But Jesus changes the water of the word of God, who is him, into the wine of the spirit. True spiritual life can fill our vessel as we bring joy to the world that we serve. So in verse 10, The master of ceremonies called the bridegroom over and he said to him, wow, every host serves his best wine first. And then after everybody's had a cup or two, when they've got a little buzz going, then he serves the cheap wine because people don't know any difference then. But you, my friend, he said, you've reserved the most exquisite wine until now. He was amazed. Nobody does that except God. Jesus just delights in our joy more than we can possibly know. The fruit of the Spirit, which is a metaphor for wine or vice versa throughout Scripture, includes joy. And there's no limit to the joy available for children of God. And we're all children of God. God doesn't withhold his joy from us. He doesn't just dole out a little bitty bit to us. No, he lavishes on it. He created between 120 and 150 gallons of the very best wine ever for a wedding feast. Now, that's the elementary, obvious story that happened here. Jesus hung out with people. He went to a wedding. They needed help, so he turned water into wine. But there's a much deeper story. Grace is unlimited. It's lavish. It's more than we can ever imagine or ask for or even think about. It's more than we can ever use or consume. 
Now, I want you to think about this. What could possibly go wrong at a party where people have already had a couple of glasses of wine, and then they're given the best wine ever in the world, way more than they could possibly consume? It was the equivalent of 980 bottles of wine in today's culture for 100 to 150 people. You don't like five, six, seven bottles of wine per person? What could possibly go wrong in a situation like that? Oh, let me see. Uh, maybe some people would have a little too much to drink and then maybe act inappropriately. Well, Jesus, God in person, was totally debunking religion's lie that God couldn't stand to be in the presence of sinners. I mean, just think about that for a while. John goes on to say in verse 11, this miracle in Cana was the first of the many extraordinary miracles Jesus performed in Galilee. This was a sign revealing his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, they started to believe in him. They didn't yet know he was God. That would come about three years later. But they sure believed he had some connection to the divine. All right, that's the first of our two points today, the size and scope of God's grace, God's provision. It's unlimited. It's more than we can imagine, ask, or comprehend. It's for everybody. The second is very much related. The second one has to do with forgiveness. Religion teaches us that you have to continually ask for forgiveness. Most religious traditions, most denominations, Certainly every week, they have a time of forgiveness at church. Some, they have a time each week when you're to go to the priest and confess your sins and ask for forgiveness. In some more conservative religious organizations, you're to ask for forgiveness every day, like every night before you go to sleep. And most certainly, in some of the more stringent conservative religious organizations, of which I came out of one, Every time you sin or even think you might have sinned, you are to ask for forgiveness because those denominations believe the lie that you will go to hell if you die after having committed a sin, but you haven't yet confessed it and asked for forgiveness. So, for example, in those denominations where I came from specifically, who said that drinking was a sin and you had to sign a statement to join the church that I was in saying that you wouldn't drink even a glass of wine. In their tradition, in their belief, in their statement of faith, if you had a glass of wine and had a heart attack while you were drinking it or right after it, before you could confess and ask for forgiveness for drinking that glass of wine, you would go to hell and suffer eternal conscious torment. That was just the way God worked. Well, <laughs> most any thinking person can see the fallacy in that. That's why my friend Malcolm Smith says, religion turns wine into water. Like you can't drink wine anymore. Once you cross the line and become religious, you have to only drink water. Where Jesus, who's not into religion at all, actually turns water into wine. See, it certainly brings a huge cognitive dissonance in your mind. It did with me. When you think about Jesus' very first miracle being turning water into the best wine ever, more wine than can ever be consumed, 
And being in a religious system that believes in Adam's dark religious small g, false god, who says, if you drink a glass of wine and don't ask for forgiveness, you're going to hell. Big cognitive difference there. All right. Let's look at the lavish, more than we can comprehend, amount of sin that has already been forgiven. You don't need God's forgiveness. You already have it. And so does everyone else. Colossians 1, 12 to 14. Paul says, your hearts can soar with joyful gratitude when you think of how God made you worthy to receive the glorious inheritance freely given to us by living in the light. He has rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom realm of Jesus. Verse 14, for in Jesus, the passion says, all our sins are canceled. The mirror version says, all our sins have been done away with. King James, New American Standard, NIV, most other translations say, all our sins have been forgiven. All our sins, past tense, have been forgiven since before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 11, the Apostle Paul, all of this here, God showed him personally, revealed to him, and it all happened because of God's great love for us before creation of the cosmos, the universe, the world. Here it is, Ephesians 1, starting 3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has already been lavished on us as a love gift from our wonderful Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus, all because He sees us in Christ. This is why we celebrate Him with all our hearts. He chose us to be His very own, joining us to Himself even before He laid the foundation of the universe. Because of His great love, He ordained, He chose us in advance, so that we would be holy in his eyes, with an unstained innocence. It was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children through our union with Jesus, the Anointed One, so that his tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace. More love, more grace cascading over us than we could possibly ever imagine or need. The same love he has for Jesus, he has for us. And this unfolding plan of God, Paul writes, brings him great pleasure. Verse 7, since we are joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood, the total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of his grace given to us in advance before the world was created. Verse 8, the superabundant grace is already powerfully working in us, releasing within us all forms of wisdom and practical understanding. And through the revelation of Jesus, God unveiled his secret desires to us, the hidden mystery of his long-range plan, which he was delighted to implement from the very beginning of time. Before beginning of time, God decided to reconcile everybody to himself because he knew we'd need it. 
Verse 10, and because of God's unfailing purpose, this detailed plan will reign supreme through every period of time until the fulfillment of all the ages finally reaches its climax when God makes all things new in all of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. Amazing. Now, we have complete and total forgiveness, and we have had it since before the foundation of the world. All of us have. I want to read, uh, and getting ready to close here, an article that my friend Steve McVeigh posted this week. He said, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he wrongly assumed God would be angry. But instead, God came looking for him to take his regular evening walk. When Abraham sent his wife Sarah into Pharaoh's tent to protect his own life by allowing her to have sex with another man, God told Pharaoh that he was on dangerous ground and he better get her out of there right now. The next words out of God's mouth to Abraham were to reassure him of the covenant he had made with him. Not a word about his sin. When Elijah, the great prophet of God, was depressed and frightened and angry and prayed to die, God sent an angel to feed him so that he might regain his strength. No shame no blame. When Peter denied Jesus three times publicly, our Lord made sure that a few hours later when he arose to mention Peter by name, he said, go tell Peter that I'm alive. No reference to what Peter had done. I mean, these were giants in the Bible, giants who made horrific choices. I've made some horrific choices. You probably have too. In each instance, Steve McVeigh writes, the love of God swallows up their sins and foolishness foolishness in one great gush of grace. It's absurd. Then Steve asked, what have you done that causes you to think that God may be disappointed or perturbed towards you? Whatever it is, you need to set it aside because that's what God has done. As absurd as it sounds, God isn't interested in what you've done in the past. He lives with you in the now, and he wants you to live in this moment of grace and accept his forgiveness. Jesus showed us our father's heart when he had the father of the prodigal son throw the boy a party when he returned home without so much as a mention of what the boy had done. That's our God. That's your God. Steve says, if you refuse to accept his acceptance, like the older brother, you'll lock yourself outside in a prison of your own making. But God will be there with you. Accept his acceptance and you'll run in a joyful freedom only known by those who know their sins never appear on God's radar. Never. You've messed up. Welcome to the world of the great children of God. It happens. So put it aside now. Don't insult the grace of God by insisting on trying to share and do your part in dealing with it through your own gnawing guilt and spiritually suicidal self-consciousness and begging for forgiveness. No, you are forgiven. You are free. You are one with the one who keeps no record of wrongs and promises to never remember him again. Steve says, so dance, run, laugh, play, celebrate. That's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing, and they ask you to join them right now. And Steve says, let's do it together. And I agree. That's great news, isn't it? All right, here's what I want myself and you and all of us to remember. We don't ever have to ask for forgiveness. Instead, we thank God for the forgiveness that we already have. And then we dance and we run and we laugh and we pray and we celebrate. We don't join Jesus, Papa, and the Holy Spirit because that's what they're doing. And one more thing. 
when people see us acting that way and they ask, wow, what's different about you? Why do you have so much joy? We can tell them, we can say it's because we have what you have too. You may not know it yet, but you have amazing abundant grace. We can tell them, you may know it, may not know it yet, but you have total forever forgiveness of any and all of your sins. You can tell them we have what you have, although you may not know it yet. You have pure, unconditional, never-ending love from and by the God of the universe. You can tell them that good news that's the best news of all from the only true God who is pure light with no trace of darkness. Hey, thanks, everybody, for being with me today for Grace to All with Paul Gray. I'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.